There are two scripture readings this morning. The first one comes from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 18 through 24. The widow of Zarephath. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs in Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my son to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper chamber where he was lodging and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The second reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Lent has begun. It began last week with Ash Wednesday when we gathered in this sanctuary to be marked with ash and to pray and to reflect on our own mortality and the things that separate us from God as we head into a period of fasting, of remembrance, of giving things up that separate us from God and taking things on that bring us closer to God. And during Lent, we're going to explore the topic and concept of resurrection as we prepare for Easter which, of course, is the holiday when we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have a lot to cover before we get to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in our most recent Bible study, we discussed questions about the resurrections in the Bible, and we decided together that it would be fruitful for us to spend uh, the next seven weeks talking about resurrection. Christ's resurrection isn't even close to the only one in the Bible. The Bible is actually full of examples of resurrections, of various forms and kinds. The disciples, in fact, were given the authority by God to uh, see the dead rise, and uh, Christ himself rose from the, rose, uh, from the dead Lazarus, and, and uh, Elijah and others in the Old Testament. There's about nine or ten, depending on where you, which way you look, uh, examples of resurrection in the Bible, and seven that are critically important that we're going to focus on over the next seven weeks. So we've got a lot to cover. Now the first thing we're going to have to do before we start this series is include a pedantic disclaimer. Now, I am one of the worst when it comes to theological pedanticness. You know, we're using the right words for the right meaning because we can, that sounds fine, but it kind of doesn't line up with this or that. So we're going to have to assume that using the word resurrection is okay. There are actually theologians who would rather we use the word resuscitation, and here's why. Because what happened to Jesus Christ is not the same as what happened to the story we read this morning. The young man, the, the son of the widow, rose from the dead, but what happened then, right? Well, it doesn't actually tell us, but we assume that the day came that he died again. We know that Lazarus didn't live forever, it didn't get assumed into heaven. This was a temporary replacement of life, differing from what happened to Jesus and differing than what happens to us when we receive Christ into our hearts and when we pass on from this life to the next. So, with that out of the way, if you must use the word resuscitation, that is perfectly fine with me, but we will use the word resurrection because I like it better and because it'll help us tie in with Easter. So, we're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about resurrection. We're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about these most incredible of miracles when life is returned to those who don't have it anymore. As I explored these series and these texts, I got a little interested in the idea of resurrection and resuscitation. The clinical definition of death is when the heart no longer beats on its own. And that's been the clinical definition of death for an extraordinarily long time. 
Uh, when the heart stops beating, blood stops flowing, and, there, and oxygen and nutrients stop going to the cells, and the cells immediately begin to die. When our heart stops, that's when we're no longer alive. When you hear stories of people who say that they were dead for 17 minutes and then came back to life, that usually means they were receiving CPR, and their heart wasn't beating on its own. It was beating at the hands of somebody else. And then, but by the grace of God, it began to beat again. Some of you may have had those experiences in your life or know people who have. It's incredible that in our world today, every single day, paramedics and doctors and nurses and people on the street allow people to live long enough for life to return to them through CPR. And actually, I even discovered that there's a thing called the Lazarus Effect or Lazarus Syndrome, which is actually kind of terrifying and scary to read about. Evidently, it's happened 38 times in 40 years. Uh, It's been recorded 38 times. And that is when somebody is declared clinically dead, the doctors stop CPR, and they wake up. And that's just a little bit terrifying, and I read some of these examples of that happening. One was uh, an individual, older individual, going through surgery to repair an aneurysm, and while undergoing surgery, his heart stopped, and they performed CPR for 17 minutes. And after 17 minutes, the surgeon declared him dead and began to clean him up and stitch him up so that he could go with the coroner. They called the coroner, several minutes go by, and all of a sudden, the monitor starts beeping. He had a heartbeat again. So they finished the surgery, and he made a full recovery. In another situation in Japan, uh, in 2006, a man found dead in his bed at a nursing home. Uh, and he was, he was uh, older. Uh, and, of course, the aid worker came in. He didn't have a pulse. They called the paramedics. Paramedics said he didn't have a pulse. And they called the coroner, and he woke up in the coroner's van. So you can think about these pretty extraordinary uh, and terrifying scenes. I can't imagine that that wasn't scary for those who witnessed it. But now to imagine these same experiences happening for an entirely different reason. Now, whether there's a medical reason for why that happened or whether it was indeed a miracle or or what was going on, we know that these stories that we're going to read about for the next seven weeks are stories of the power of God at work in the lives of of the people who called for it. And today we're meeting Elijah. Elijah is an important prophet and a direct predecessor to Jesus. In fact, if we fast forward to the end and Elijah Elijah was assumed in heaven, uh, right? He didn't, we don't have a death story of Elijah. We just have him being assumed into heaven. Elijah performed miracles, including raising people from the dead. And it was believed by many that John the Baptist at least represented Elijah in the world because of what he did for Jesus to bring Jesus, the message of Jesus, into the world. Elijah is the predecessor to Jesus and is one of the most important prophets in the Bible. During Christ's transfiguration, when he was up on the mountaintop and his face glowed with the face of God, It was Elijah and Moses who were there with him. And in Judaism today, uh, the Sabbath is marked to to end on Saturday morning. It is ended with a reflection on Elijah. And the Passover Seder includes elements of Elijah. And throughout Christianity and Judaism, Elijah is referenced again and again and again because of how critical of a prophet he was. But the passage we find Elijah in today is a part of his story that demonstrates God's willingness to fulfill his needs. Elijah is fed by ravens in the passage that precedes this. Ravens are an unclean animal. God does this on purpose to help us understand that God's work comes through everyone and everything, that even those who are separate from God are not immune from God doing good work in their lives. And so the unclean ravens bring Elijah food. This is also an intentional snub, in a way, of the Canaanites. The Canaanites are where Elijah was, like every, just about every prophet, he found himself 
at odds with political and religious leaders because his message of God's coming, of grace, of repentance, was not compatible with their power structures. So he was fleeing to the land of Canaan as instructed by the Lord. The Canaanites worshipped Baal and believed that Baal would bring rain, and they were experiencing a tremendous drought. Now, God didn't send rain for Elijah. God sent ravens, unclean ravens, to feed him. And then a Phoenician woman, a worshiper of Baal, we, we assume, to feed him. And this is what happens. He goes up to the woman at the city gates, and he says, Will you give me some water? She says, Yes. And he says, All right, will you also grab me something to eat? And she stops. And she gives a, an oath. That's the beginning of her statement, is an oath. And we, we hear this today, don't we? We don't use the same word, right? She said, As sure as the Lord is your God. But we say different things, right? I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's life, or anything like that. We, we have those sorts of phrases that we use that are supposed to intend, are supposed to uh, imply that we're really, really serious and really, really telling the truth, right? <clears throat> so that's what she says. She says, I swear as sure as the Lord is your God, all I have is a little bit of flour on the bottom of a dish and a tiny bit of oil. And look, this is what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to make a little bit of bread, and my son and I are going to split it, and then we're going to lay down and die, because we're going to starve to death. That's where our world is today. Single women in, in, in the first century, or ninth, ninth century B.C., uh, were destitute. They had nothing, nothing to offer, and nothing received. So this woman and her son were destined to die of hunger. So this woman takes <coughs> this ask of God and tells him that she doesn't have enough. So Elijah responds, look, God has asked you to do that. God has asked you to provide for me. God sent you to this place. And let me tell you what that means. That means that the flour, as low as it is now, it's never going any lower until the rain returns. That oil that's in your dish, it's never going to run out until the rain returns. And so she agrees. She does, as Elijah asks, she prepares for him something to eat, and then for her and her son as well. Elijah stays with her. I'm amazed by this story. So often, we're asked by God to do extraordinary things, and we tell God that we don't have enough. And this woman, who was, a, who was prepared to starve to death with her son, brought a stranger into her home and fed him. And as a result, the reward from God was that day after day after day went by, and the flour didn't get any lower, the oil didn't run out, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate. Elijah demonstrated to this woman the power of God to provide for the needs of those faithful enough to offer what little they have to those who God calls them to offer it to. But then the story doesn't end there. It gets a little worse. The widow's son dies, right? The Bible says that he was ill, and eventually his illness got to the point where he had no more breath. He died. And then we get to... Elijah's intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is when we pray for someone else. And I'm guilty of this phrase too. And I shouldn't be because it's a terrible phrase. And that phrase is the, the only thing we can do now is pray, right? How many of you have ever said or heard that? We can be honest with each other in here, right? The only thing we can do now is pray. As if that's some sort of small thing, as if that's some sort of last-ditch effort, as if it isn't the most powerful, important, and extraordinary thing we can ever do for anyone in the world is to pray to God on their behalf. So Elijah shows us the power of intercessory prayer, shows us what intercessory prayer can do. When he prays over the boy, he puts his hands on him, he says, God, restore the life of this child. And he wakes up. 
Maybe not as exciting as waking up in a coroner's van on your way from the nursing home that two people declared you dead from. Perhaps even more extraordinary because it was the hand of God at work through those who had prayed for him, who had loved him, that saw his life return. Elijah's story is a story of God performing miracles for good from those who are willing to sacrifice what little they had. Saturday night, Ashley and I watched uh, Hacksaw Ridge. We watched the Oscars, uh, which is a little bit silly for somebody who doesn't watch movies, but, you know, whatever. And, uh, and Hacksaw Ridge got Best Actor, and I was interested in it. The story was interesting <clears throat> because I'm a bit of a history buff, and I really like the story of these conscientious objector medics. And these were medics during World War II who refused to take up arms against anybody, right? They refused to pick up a weapon and kill anybody. Now, this is common with Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, less common now, but it actually was something that Methodists really affirmed hold and hard to, especially prior to the Second World War. Even in cases of self-defense, even in cases of war, there was no justification ever for taking a human life, and that's the belief of these people. Now, what's unique about the real Desmond Doss, uh, it doesn't really get played out in the movie very well, but what's unique about the real Desmond Doss is that there were lots of opportunities for conscientious objectors. You could go work on maintenance in a Navy ship, like his brother did. Uh, you could work as a typist uh, back somewhere else, or you could do what he got, which was a deferment, right? He was given, he, he was told by the Army, you can stay and work at the sawmill or the paper mill, and, uh, and that's okay. But he says, no, I want to join an infantry unit. I want to be on the front lines. I want to be in combat, saving lives as a medic, without a gun. I won't touch a gun, I won't take a life. So he goes through a lot of hardships, he goes through a court battle, and then he goes to a ridge where the movie gets its title from. I'll spare you the details. If you want to watch the movie, it's a great movie, but be warned, it's a Mel Gibson movie. Mel Gibson's a strange character because he doesn't like bad language, but he loves blood and guts. So you won't have any bad language in the movie, but you'll see lots and lots of insides all over your screen for about the whole movie. But, uh, But that's Mel Gibson for you. But anyway, he, uh, he goes up on the ridge and he fights, and the real Desmond Doss, the, what really happened was a period of four days where everyone had retreated. They would occasionally come back and retreat, come back, retreat, but Desmond Doss never retreated. He spent four days, he was wounded four times in four days, and in total he, re- he rescued or saved 155 soldiers, 75 of whom he lowered down with a rope. The real Desmond Doss received the Medal of Honor for this courage, <coughs> but the interviews, which do get shown in the movie, of Desmond show him telling the interviewer that each and every person that he treated, whether the, you know, the rest that they were able to climb down themselves, those that he lowered down, he said, Lord, help me get one more. And those who were there, who received treatment from Desmond and everything else, saw the bullets flying over his head, saw him miraculously only wounded four times under fire, said that it was a miracle. Miracles happen every day in our lives, and we see it in those who are willing to do good, to offer peace, to resist injustice, and to resist harm. Elijah, in the same way, received the miracle of of, of providence, of being provided by God through the unclean ravens and the unbelieving widow. As a result, God sought to it to heal the dead widow's son. And as a result... The the widow proclaimed that the God of Elijah was truly the God of all. Now what we have afterwards, about 900 years later, we'll skip ahead a bit, (coughs) Satan has this bewildering attempt to tempt Jesus. Now if you look in your Bible, it probably has the headline, The Temptation of Jesus. I've always had a problem with that headline because I don't know about you, but when I read the story, I don't see a lot of tempting going on. I see a lot of words 
from a guy, and I see a very annoyed Jesus. Maybe that's just the way I picture it in my head, saying, all right, this is why we can't do that. No, it doesn't work that way. All right, leave me alone, you know. There really wasn't a moment, at least in the story, where Jesus seriously considered what Satan had to say. But Satan tempts him with the exact same things that Elijah himself experienced 900 years earlier. Satan tempts him with life. He says, jump off the cliff. You know God will save you because it's not your appointed time. This is not the time for you to die. Jump off the cliff and let God save you. You know he will. And Jesus doesn't deny that. He just says, look, I'm not here to test God, and neither should you. So he says, you've got to be hungry. It's been 40 days without food or water. Turn this rock into bread. Nobody will see it. You'll be filled, and you'll be happy. Now, this is interesting because Elijah was given food by the ravens. Elijah was given food by the Phoenician women. But Jesus was asked to give up. In that part of the story, Jesus was a little bit more the Phoenician woman than Elijah. Jesus was asked to give up by God, to give up food and sustenance so that he could become closer to God in that moment. Over 40 days, he fasted, and he told Satan, no, I won't do that. So then Satan tries to tug at him at the one place he thinks might still work, and that's the fact that Jesus knows that just like Elijah and just like Ezekiel and just like Jeremiah and all the ones before him, the political and religious powers of the world were going to oppose him because his message of God's power and grace was incompatible with their power. So he says, look, at all the kingdoms of the world worship me and they're yours. Right? Nobody can oppose you if you're in charge. If you're emperor of the universe, if you're president of the world, <clears throat> nobody is going to lay a hand on you. You'll be fine. And Jesus says, no. I don't want those things. Jesus demonstrates for us that what God wants is not to have a strong-armed control of our lives, but rather for us to submit and consent to God so that, God can be, so that we can become Christ's image in the world. This demonstration again and again and again that God asks and wants willing participants. God asks the Phoenician woman, and she agrees. God asks Jesus. God asks us. <coughs> So Satan has this bewildering attempt that doesn't work. Now, Elijah's story is amazing. It's a story of a man of God who shares the love of God with people. But here and now, dear friends, I am encouraged by the faith of the woman who had no faith, of the woman who didn't have a conversion first and then did something good. She did something good and then saw her conversion. This woman was destitute and was asked to give up what little she had for God, a God she didn't believe in. Now, whether it was persuasion, desperation, or just apathy, I don't know, but whatever reason, she chose to heed God's call. As a result, she was blessed with sustenance and even life. In the end, she declared that not only the Lord God was God, but that Elijah was a man of God. This story is foundationally important to helping us understand who God is in our lives Because we believe sometimes that we have to be a super-Christian. We have to be ultra-pious before God is ever going to ask us to do anything. But in fact, God can use the raven. God can use the Phoenician woman. God can use the Baal-worshipping Canaanite. If only they would submit to God. For many of us, Christianity has become a backburner issue. Our faith is falling down the list of things that matter to us and that are important to us. Christian is just something we are, but not really everything we are. We lament the size of our churches. We lament that Christians make up fewer and fewer in our world, but we wouldn't dare share our faith with others. It makes us uncomfortable. 
What if this Lent we were reminded that even Christ fasted? Reminded that Elijah worked miracles for God by being faithful to God? Reminded that the Phoenician woman was richly blessed by her willingness to give what little she had when it was asked? What if we committed again to taking our faith so seriously that we too would be willing to give up our last little bit of flour and oil for Jesus? Now, in 2017, most of us have flour and oil to spare. Those of us who came on Tuesday have probably consumed enough flour and oil to last them for the month in the form of pancakes. But what is it that we're so stretched thin on, that we cling to, that becomes a point of focus for us because as humans, we tend to focus more on what we have little of and not enough and what we have a lot of, right? That's just a survival instinct. We focus on what we don't have. We don't focus on what we do have. What is it that we cling to that remains at the bottom of our jar that God is asking us to offer to someone else? Is it money? How many of us are unwilling to do what we know God is calling us to do, to live a life of generosity because we are convinced we don't have enough? I find that people who have very little, people who have a lot, all think that they don't have enough, except for those who are extraordinarily faithful who so often end up being the ones who have so little. The, widow might, the widow's might comes to mind, the widow who brought the couple of pennies that she had to offer to God, who Jesus said gave more than all the Pharisees who gave tremendous amounts of money but was just a fraction of what they had. What about time? Time is a big one for so many of us. I like to listen to uh, uh, podcasts a lot on a lot of different subjects. <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I, my personality type, I love to learn. I don't really care what I'm learning as long as it's something I don't already know. So I like to listen to podcasts on economics and on the economy and, and that sort of thing. And uh, maybe I should sit down with Joyce sometime and she can tutor me or something. But, uh, but it's fascinating to me. And one thing that's fascinating to me is the productivity statistic. That's a big deal. Business owners and contractors and government officials and investors and bankers are very concerned when productivity stag- gets stagnant. Because in our society, in our world today, every day we're expected to do more than we did the day before. Indeed, as a society, we expect to get more done than we did last week. As a result, our time is stretched unprecedentedly thin. We are so busy in our world that often what's in our jar is our time. That little bit at the bottom that just scrapes the bottom. You can see the bottom. There's so little of it. And Elijah comes to us and says, can I have some of your time? And you say, I only have enough for me and my son, and then afterwards I'm going to crawl in a hole because I don't have enough to offer you. But what happened to the Phoenician woman? Did she, did she take the flour and the oil and, and bake something for Elijah and then die hungry? No. <clears throat> Every day she ate. Every day she baked. Every day that little bit of flour at the bottom, that little bit of oil in the dish was still there. When we give up to God, what God asks us to give up, we don't lose it, we gain. We gain when we're willing to offer what little is in our jar. What else might be in your jar? Might be something that needs to be released anyway that you ought not to have, like sin. Sin can cling to our jars, right? And that could be a lot of things. It could be the things that we know separate us from God, the behaviors and the actions that aren't compatible with God. They could be attitudes, grudges. They could be withholding forgiveness. There can be so much in our jar that we're unwilling to pour out for God. What else might God ask us for? Might God ask us to pour out our pride so that instead we can share the love of Christ? Might God ask us to pour out all of the things 
we cling to because we feel we don't have enough. That we hold tight to because we're positive that we don't have it to spare. And God asks us to spare it, and we say, God, I can't, I don't have it. Maybe one day when I have more. Maybe one day when I have more. What if instead we had the faith of the widow who offered to Elijah what little she had because God asked for it. And as a result, what she had was multiplied. How might God bless you when you're willing to let go of that jar and to give God what you're just sure you don't have enough to spare? How might God reveal to you just how much, what little you have can be multiplied when you give it to God? God's power to restore life from those whom, whom, for whom life has ended is as mystifying as it is powerful because it is evidence of what God can do when, when, when we don't put limits on God. If God can restore life to one who has died, surely God can restore whatever it is that you're willing to offer to God. Lent is a time to let go and let God. And my prayer for each of us this Lent, as we head into these seven weeks, looking at these extraordinary stories of resurrection, that we would be willing to let the lid off that jar for just a moment, to release what we think we don't have enough to God, so that we can watch God multiply what little we have to do extraordinary things in our world. Amen.